Hello, hello, and welcome to the very first IRL horror episode. I'm your host, Buexo, and I'm so excited to be doing this and bring you all along on the journey. Here is where we dive into topics such as true crime, mysteries, whatever creepy or spooky things we can find, and you be scared knowing it's real, or you decide whether or not you even believe it. Why, you might ask? Well, because there is nothing more scary than real life. And in the cases where people have lost their lives or have gone missing, I believe they deserve a voice. So maybe we can all learn something here too. Today we are starting with a fairly recent addition to the list of prolific serial killers, one I find particularly terrifying and equally interesting. It's Bruce MacArthur, otherwise known as the Landscape Killer, which is kind of a stupid name. It makes it sound like the dude ran around chopping down bushes or something, like he might as well be named the Arborist, but you'll see why he's named this as we go down the rabbit hole. And a rabbit hole it is indeed. I also picked this for the first episode because it has so many layers to dive into. This case really rocked not only a city, a country even, but also resonated with and scared a lot of specific communities, which made such a huge impact. Alright, so our story unfolds northeast of Toronto that holds the town of Lindsay, Ontario, where MacArthur was born on October 8, 1951. He was born and grew up in a time and place that had certain notions about and around homosexuality. There was certainly a big stigma around being gay. In fact, it was even criminal. To top it off, he came from a family that was religious and active in their religious beliefs and community, and was apparently quite strict. I've seen some mentions here and there about his father being particularly strict, but nothing specific about it. He met Janice Campbell, who he went to Fenland Falls High School with, and they graduated in 1970. They decided to go ahead and get married after that. At this time, MacArthur was not open about being gay, but he is in fact gay. It was actually right around this time when the laws were starting to change around homosexuality. But to paint a picture of this time period, Toronto didn't have an established gay village, although it was beginning to build itself up around downtown Toronto, with a few blocks on Yonge Street that housed bars. And although homosexual relationships had recently been decriminalized, Society still wasn't very accepting of the LGBTQ2S plus community. Tensions were high between the people who frequented the area and establishments, bigots, and police. It seems the police have a bit of a history not being particularly motivated to help this community. Police seemed more interested in enforcing the law when it came to this community rather than helping them when it came to outside threats. Understandably, in that kind of environment, Tensions were high between the gay community wanting to feel safe and be themselves with the police and with people that just couldn't get over themselves and, well, mind their own damn business. So when men started going missing or being murdered in the growing gay village, many of those cases ended up going cold, although some people did suspect a serial killer unofficially. Which might seem like an odd thing to be talking about, but it was at this time after he graduated and got married that he started working at a store in downtown Toronto called Eaton's, which is no longer in existence. 
So he wasn't too far away from this area daily, and the area becomes relevant in a moment, if you stick with me. Once he moved on with his career, he ended up becoming a salesman that worked on the road traveling around the GTA, which is the greater Toronto area. MacArthur and his wife lived their lives, expanding their family with two children and even buying a home. He ends up becoming more involved in the church, and was having affairs with men while doing so. I have to think that the two were interconnected here, especially considering the time period he grew up in and their views on his sexuality. He was clearly struggling with who he was and, well, what he wanted. Around the same time, he starts having financial issues, even filing for bankruptcy. He isn't working at his job anymore, which is perhaps the catalyst for a big change in his life. MacArthur and his wife separate, and he moves to Toronto in 1997 as an openly gay man. It was in Toronto that he started working as a landscaper in a seasonal mall Santa at Agent Court Mall in Scarborough. On October 31st, 2001, MacArthur would come up behind Mark Henderson and hit him over and over with a metal pipe. Poor, unsuspecting Mark was left with a fractured skull and an injured hand, and he is also the first known victim of MacArthur. Thankfully, he survived. Although what happened next possibly led to many people losing their lives. Right after the attack on Mark, MacArthur went to the police station and turned himself in. He was charged with weapons dangerous, assault with a weapon, and assault causing bodily harm. During the judicial process, Mark was described as a, quote, male hustler, which was a term used to describe a gay sex worker, which is entirely unnecessary in my opinion, and I'm honestly not sure why it would have mattered regardless. I actually watched a news program where Mark was talking about his experience and himself, and he seems like such a lovely man, and he could have been described in so many other ways. In reality, he's a human, regardless of anything else. He was even a nurse. What really matters, though, is that he was an innocent human being that was viciously attacked, and he deserved help and justice. At the trial, MacArthur claimed he had a previous sexual relationship with Mark, and tried to say that Mark had let him in, and he thought it was an invitation for sex. I'm not sure how those two things equal each other, or how that's somehow supposed to be an excuse for fracturing someone's skull, but he later recanted and pled guilty to the charges. Now, there was a psych report done during this process that said MacArthur was unlikely to reoffend again. They basically blamed his medication or something along those lines, and while he could have received something like 10 years in jail for his actions, he actually only got one year house arrest, a two-year ban from the gay village, and three years probation. Now, you'll see this obviously didn't stop him, and that psych report was so beyond wrong. Mark, on the other hand, tried to cope with what happened to him, and he went on to become a volunteer auxiliary police officer in 2007, even graduating as a valedictorian, and he did this to try to build connections between the police and the gay community, which is just so awesome, and even though it was a long time ago now, congratulations, Mark, that's just so great. MacArthur went on to work on his own landscaping business, once he could, he became more active within the gay community in Toronto and started signing up for websites looking for submissive men. In September 2010, Skandaraj Namaratnam went missing. In December of 2010, Abdul Bazir Faizi also went missing. And in October of 2012, Majid Kahan also went missing. It was after Majid went missing, the police created a task force called Project Houston to investigate a tip that these men 
could have been the victims of a cannibal ring in Toronto. Apparently, Interpol contacted Toronto Police Services to warn them of a potential cannibal because there was someone going around on cannibal fetish sites claiming to be killing and eating men within the GTA. It turned out that this wasn't the case, but that these three missing men did meet the profile the supposed cannibal had been talking about. Project Houston wound down, citing no evidence of criminal activity. So I guess that means that they couldn't find any evidence of this cannibal actually having done anything. So they had to stop investigating. On November 11th, 2013, MacArthur was actually brought in for questioning by police during this time because he could be linked to all three of these men. Skandaraj could be linked romantically to MacArthur, something like 20 years prior, and they were even reportedly friends on Facebook. Mistakes were made, and MacArthur was free to leave because he looked like an innocent older man, and he was a mall Santa, I guess. I don't know, but they let him go. In later interviews with the lead on the case, Detective Sergeant Hank Singer said it wasn't unusual to be interviewing people who knew more than one of these victims or people with criminal records. In 2014, after he was interviewed about these missing men, MacArthur was able to get his record cleared. So if anyone went poking around, Mark's attack wouldn't be listed, and MacArthur was just a landscaping, jolly gay Santa man. It's unclear to me whether or not MacArthur's son was working with him at this point in time, but it looks like from reports that he was working with him at some point in his landscaping business. Either way, his son was a busy dude, making obscene phone calls to women constantly and going to jail for that. Which certainly makes me wonder about genetics, but that's another topic for another day. And then came the disappearance of Sarush Mahmoodi and Krushna Kumar King Ratnam in 2015. Dean Lisowick vanished in April of 2016, but he was homeless, so he was unfortunately not reported missing. And then we come to June of 2016, where an unidentified caller calls 911 and says that someone just tried to, quote, strangle me to death, and that the attacker's name is Bruce. From what I've gathered, this victim was someone who knew MacArthur, and he met up with him in his van. MacArthur asked him to lay down on a fur coat he had set out and proceeded to attempt to strangle him. I guess this victim escaped, and here we have MacArthur, again, going to the police station to turn himself in, where he told police that it was just a small disagreement and that he did nothing wrong, and being the jolly old gay white mall Santa he was, now with a squeaky clean record, they let him go with no charges made. In April 2017, Salim Essen goes missing, and in June 2017, Andrew Kinsman is reported missing. His loved ones acted fairly fast, it seems, and they were able to find an appointment on his calendar simply marked Bruce for the last day he was seen. This is when police create the Project Prism Task Force. Now, there was surveillance showing Andrew go towards the red 2004 Dodge Caravan, and police were able to see that the same make and model was registered to none other than Bruce MacArthur. In case you were wondering how much you can get for a vehicle with evidence inside it, it's $125. While police were tailing MacArthur, he managed to sell the vehicle to an auto wrecking shop in Cordes, Ontario. Police were able to retrieve the car and, in turn, the DNA evidence it held. Police then went to MacArthur's home when he wasn't there and cloned his computer, finding pictures of the missing men dead. MacArthur was put under surveillance around the clock, and police were told to arrest him if he entered his home with anyone. 
He did, and so they acted, saving yet another victim in the process. Upon his arrest, police were able to charge him with two counts of first-degree murder, which is great. They saved another victim, got proof they needed to charge him, but where were these men they found pictures and DNA of? And only two counts of first-degree murder? I bet you've caught on now, just as the police did. The puzzle pieces are falling into place. This is where that stupid serial killer name comes into play. What did MacArthur do for work aside from being a mall Santa? Yep, he was a landscaper with his own business. So maybe he liked the idea of gardening for more than just the pretty flowers. Apparently, being a landscaper is a good or effective serial killer job to have. Police were now able to get warrants and cadaver dogs were brought to the places that MacArthur worked. And surprise, surprise, the dogs took interest in these large planter boxes on the property. Now, they did find skeletal remains, and MacArthur was charged with the presumed deaths of Majid, Sarouche, and Dean. As February rolled around and the ground thawed for them to work better, police found the remains of three more men, totaling six people, and they were identified through dental records. Two months later, a seventh count, Abdul Bazir's body was found and identified in the planters. And finally, an eighth count, Karushna Kumar, who was again found in the planters. If that weren't terrifying enough, they found more remains in the ravine behind the property, some of them of bodies already found, but also of Majid on July 20th. Now, part of what makes this just insane and disgusting is that MacArthur admired his handiwork often. There are reports of him and others eating by those planters and admiring them. It's just gross and wrong, and I can't even imagine what the people living there must have gone through after discovering that. I doubt they'll ever be the same again. I know I wouldn't. I know the question will be asked, and how can I really talk about the crimes committed without telling you what MacArthur actually did? From what I could find, it seems as though these men weren't held for long, that he did kill them through some form of strangulation around the same time they were taken, and then took the time to do some post-killing rituals? I guess that's the word for it. Anyway, these included things like photographing the men unconscious, dead, undressed, but also dressed up. In my research, I found one article that stated he dressed them up in a fur coat and with a cigar in their mouths. Again, he photographed all of this and saved them to his computer, looking at the files long after he had murdered them. To dispose of the bodies, he dismembered them in his apartment, and then hid them in the planters, as previously mentioned. MacArthur was sentenced to life on February 8, 2019. Now, he can apply for parole when he turns 91, but the judge noted that it's unlikely that he would be granted parole and he likely won't live that long. Now that you know the overall story, there is actually more we need to dive into. Ah, uh, no, 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 this story is not quite over yet. MacArthur was charged with and pled guilty to the murders of Skandaraj, Abdul Bazir, Majid, Sarush, Karushna, Dean, Selim, and Andrew. But we also know of at least three other attacks on people's lives. MacArthur is old. He's in his senior years now, and even when we assume he started killing, if we assume he started killing with Skandaraj in 2010, he was old then too. Typically, too old to be killing as a serial killer, especially one just starting out. In fact, Ji Young Lee, a criminologist with the University of Toronto, has been quoted in interviews as saying he was definitely very atypical, and went on to explain, but he wasn't a complete anomaly. 
Ronnie Franklin, the grim sleeper in LA, was also an elderly man. With that being said, he doesn't fit the age demographics for serial killers at age 66. Professor Mark Arnfeld of Western University examined MacArthur's behavior and said that serial killers are widely thought to be limited to males age 18 to 26, and that by 35, offenders are aging out. So this begs the question, did he start late or do his crimes go back decades? If you remember me talking about that point in time where MacArthur was working fairly close to that emerging gay community that had been popping up, well, there was another reason for bringing that up. That area is actually now what is referred to as the gay village in Toronto. That turns out to be the place MacArthur spent much of his time, where he found his victims. It's also where he kept getting banned from. There's also the case of all those missing and murdered gay men in the area where MacArthur was working around Eaton's all those years ago. If you remember after Eaton's, he was also a salesman on the road around the GTA, and that would likely give him ample opportunity to offend as well. I believe these are very real possibilities. Whether history was haunting the village or not, the men who went missing or lost their lives in the 70s and 80s, who never got justice served, absolutely deserve it, and so do their families. I know that this was brought up after he was arrested, I believe even by the police themselves, but I can't find anything recent or how much the police looked into these older cases. I hope that one day they are able to find the answers and justice they seek. As for MacArthur and his known victims, they may have answers, but there is one that we will probably never truly have the answer to, and that's why. And while we can never know for sure what made MacArthur commit these unspeakable crimes, we can take some educated guesses into his mind via his upbringing, stressors, and life. We know that trauma plays a big part in what makes someone a serial killer. Perhaps for MacArthur, it was a combination of a life filled with internalized homosexuality and homophobia, maybe coupled with the struggles in his home life and his identity, or rather his acceptance of finding it as an adult. Obviously, I can't say for sure, but I assume all those things played a role, considering the nature of his crimes. Trauma is unique for everyone in what's happened to them, how it's built up, and how we react or cope, or a lack thereof. During his trial, MacArthur was given the opportunity to speak to the court, but he didn't, not even to show any form of remorse. He replied, no, your honor, I've discussed this with my counsel and I don't want to say anything. Although it might be a little morbid, but I mean, really that's what we do here. I would like to see some sort of interview or have someone come out with some sort of explanation he's given for his acts. Although nothing he can say would justify any of it. I would be curious to see it. Canada seems to be more rigid in the sense that they don't seem to allow prisoners to speak out, or perhaps he doesn't want to. I'm not sure, but I wasn't able to find anything on him speaking about his motivations. Now, not that trauma is ever an excuse for illegal or poor behavior, which I think is very important to state. Clearly, not everyone who struggles in life, because we all do, is going to hurt others or become a serial killer. I think that's what makes the people that do an area that is so interesting to others. But with all that said, he got away with this for a very long time, and entirely too long of a time. How? Well, this is the question everyone had when he was finally arrested, 
so much so that a retired Ontario Court of Appeals Justice, Gloria Epstein, was tasked with conducting a civilian review amid all the public criticism of the case and how a number of missing persons reports in the village were handled. We know that MacArthur targeted people who were marginalized and vulnerable in various ways, all of them being their sexuality, some being their ethnicity, and things like socioeconomic status, which led to their disappearances often being given less attention than they deserved. This allowed MacArthur to continue to prey on unsuspecting men and elude and play with the police as he needed or wished. The report that was recently completed did come out with 151 recommendations on how to improve missing persons investigations in the future. So hopefully that was some good that came out of this, although really, a lot of this shouldn't have had to be said. But if it's going to help future victims, it's a good step in the right direction. Gloria Epstein is quoted saying, I cannot say that MacArthur would have necessarily been apprehended earlier if these investigative steps had been taken. He was a true psychopath. He disarmed others, including Detective Constable McKenzie, with his calm and ostensibly helpful approach to the interview. But the Toronto police did lose important opportunities to identify him as the killer. Eight dead innocent human beings, three known attempts on people's lives, two police task force, three known interactions between MacArthur and the police, and nearly two decades before MacArthur was finally stopped and caught for good. I think it's important to emphasize that he was caught, forced to stop, and didn't do that of his own volition. Remember, he was caught in the middle of attempting to murder another man. During his trial, Justice McMahon called him pure evil, and I'm not sure there isn't a more apt description. The impact these horrible events have had on the LGBTQ2S plus community in Toronto has been deep and sorrowful. It has brought up and brought to light issues this community faces in being treated as they should be in situations such as these. While I know most of this is focused on MacArthur and the case itself, I don't want that to be the only focus. While horrifying and interesting from a criminology standpoint, these were heinous acts that should have never happened. Innocent men lost their lives here because MacArthur took it upon himself to end them. Families were destroyed, people's lives were forever altered, and I don't think he took any of that into account when he did any of what he did. I want to take a moment to talk about these men, because they aren't here to tell their story anymore. They still deserve a voice, and I know that there isn't anything I can do to help them, but I can help keep their memory alive. I was able to find some of the statements from the court proceedings where family and friends wrote victim impact statements, and from those, I was able to get some information on who some of these men were as people, as well as get what I could from news articles I found about them. I wish I could give you all more than just a slight glimpse at who these men were. I can certainly say that they were all loved, and that they are all greatly missed, that their murders had a huge impact on the people around them on so many different levels. Skandaraj Navaratnam. He moved from Sri Lanka to Toronto, escaping a civil war, where he was then free to be himself. His brother describes him to the court as always being up for fun, the live wire of their family. He says Skandaraj wanted to give his family a better life. His friend Phil also told the court that Skanda was highly educated, talented, and almost unbeatable at Scrabble. Abdul Bazir Faisi. 
was clearly very loved and is greatly missed by his wife and their two children. Karima, his wife, tells the court of the memories their children are left with of their father playing with them. He is described as funny, smart, and loving of his children. Krishna Kumar Kangaratnam. Krishna Kumar was looking for a better life in Canada. He fled Sri Lanka because of a civil war and found himself unable to get his status accepted in Canada. He came to Canada wanting better, wanting to be safe. Krishna Kumar is remembered as being a quiet man, kind, charitable, and dutiful to his family. Majid Kahan. Majid left behind two kids, three grandkids, and the rest of his family that all miss him very much. Andrew Kinsman. His sister describes him as an extraordinary, quirky, and caring person. A tenant of the building he worked in described him as a strong person, a cancer survivor who loved restoring the building he worked in, tending to plants, social justice, and cooking. And Marion, a friend, told the court a sweet and funny story about how he loved to bake banana bread and would feed it to her all the time when she was studying for her medical school entrance test, that he told her the potassium would help her memory, which, of course, she says isn't backed by science, but he was just sweet like that. Dean Lisowick. Julie, Dean's cousin, told the court about his amazing smile and how he wanted to get his life together and do something good for his daughter. He is described as sweet and eager, a fixture of the community. Sarush Mahmoodi. Sarush is described as a jokester who loved to camp and play soccer. His friend Brett says everyone who met him liked him. Salim Essen. Salim is described as being full of compassion, wisdom, and a desire to help people. He was a fantastic peer worker with a passion for philosophy and learning new things. I know this case was full of various levels of public safety and equality concerns as well as possible answers to more unsolved cold cases from decades ago. Do I think there's a connection between these crimes and the ones committed in the past? Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm certainly no professional. I do think that they are very real possibilities, ones that should be thoroughly looked into. It does seem to me like he was quite old to start killing now, and it seems like maybe he could have had ample opportunity to commit offenses during much of his life. In my research, I did see that police found folders on his computer with a folder for every one of his known victims, containing pictures of them in various states of the crimes being committed, but also a folder for the man they saved when they arrested him. Now, I'm sure people can evolve and start doing things in different ways, but I'm going to assume that chances are there would be evidence of more victims on his devices if he was doing it for all of the ones that we do know about. Then again, there are at least two victims he did attempt to kill in different ways, one of them being the anonymous caller. We know that by the time that attack took place, MacArthur had already taken many lives and had been chronicling his crimes, but attacks of opportunity, like the one on Mark or even the anonymous 911 caller who was asked to meet him in his van, which is unlike the details of the other crimes we know about where people did lose their lives. Who knows how much information is public, or if he only started keeping pictures then, or, well, who knows. I'll let you decide what you think about that. And with that, we wrap up our first IRL horror episode. Until next time, stay spooky, and please, stay safe.